We're pleased to announce the newly relaunched TheRinger.com this week. We're really excited for everyone to see the new site. Check out our latest articles, videos, and podcasts at TheRinger.com. And special thanks to Miller Lite, who've been with us since the beginning and have been fantastic partners to us. We're thrilled to have them as the relaunch sponsor for the site, Miller Lite, the official beer of The Ringer. And we're also introducing The Elder Scrolls Legends, Heroes of Skyrim, the latest game from Bethesda. The Elder Scrolls Legends is a new mobile strategy card game that immerses gamers in the dragons, the world, and the lore of the award-winning Elder Scrolls universe. From building your deck to taking on foes in one of the game's three exciting modes, every decision you make will require strategy and careful planning. The Elder Scrolls Legends is available for download globally on both Android and iOS devices today. Welcome, travelers, to the throat of the world. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringers video game podcast, part of Whoa. the Ringers Podcast Network. I am Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. On the other line, seated in the chair, just with a perfect complexion, just his hair, just perfectly groomed. Looks like he just got off of TV or is just about to go back onto TV. It's my colleague at The Ringer, Jason Hello. Concepcion. Hello, Jason. Technically, it's Twitter. I'm not sure it's technically TV. It's like whatever. It's the next TV. It's whatever is yeah. beyond TV. It's the future of TV. Future of TV. Yeah. So I am making fun of how good you look because <laughs> yeah, we're, we're talking to <laughs> your it. makeup artist for Talk the Thrones, who right. also does lots of makeup for esports and Blizzard right. and video game companies. And she has some interesting stories to tell. So we will get to That's her true. in just a few minutes. And then later in the episode, we're going to talk to one of my baseball buddies, Keith Law from ESPN, who is Exciting. also a serious board gamer, tabletop gamer. And we're going to talk about the crossovers between tabletop games and video games and why tabletop games are having a golden age right now. Just before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about some late-breaking Overwatch news here before we started recording. There was a video featuring Jeff Kaplan of the Overwatch team, probably his makeup done by <laughs> Ada, the, the makeup artist we're about to talk to for this video. So looking good, She was good, going out Jeff. there the other week. Yeah, it yeah, probably, probably was for, that. for this. <laughs> and he was announcing that Overwatch, which is a team-based game, yes. is getting a free-for-all, a, a deathmatch mode. And this seems possibly divisive in the Overwatch community, which is already roiling with various yes. complaints various. and dissatisfactions. Many. <laughs> so, yeah. So what do you think? Deathmatch mode. I mean, I guess I understand the impetus to create something that has a lower frustration level, I guess, that you can right. just go yeah. into that, that has no strategic thinking whatsoever. I I also think it's fundamentally against the philosophy of the structure of the game. You're talking about a team-based game that has classes and has healers mm-hmm. who put out very low damage and they, it's just like I I like I don't understand how you do it if you picked say a support character. I guess you just would never pick a support character. Yeah, it's it just very, just feels it's strange to me. But Listen, if it gets people into the game, I, I welcome it. It's, it is a thing where it certainly is a feeling you have while playing Overwatch that it's either you can either play a casual queue to just jump in. Like if you only have yourself, you're not playing with anybody else, you can jump into casual games and just kind of not care that much about losing mm-hmm. uh, or competitive. And it's, that's a, it's a pretty wide uh, gulf between those two things. So I guess if this, if this provides people with another outlet to play the game, get to know the characters, that's positive. It's just, it's just, fundamentally strange especially in a game where (laughs) you know you don't regen health unless Mm. you know only certain characters do so it's not like playing free-for-all in halo or playing free-for-all in call of duty where you run away and you just would regen health certain characters do that but it's it it feels exceedingly strange to me yeah well i guess it would be more of like a low ceiling high floor kind of activity than regular overwatch because You'll you'll probably still have fun, but maybe not as much fun as you do in a perfect Overwatch game where everyone's working in tandem and going for the objectives and you get that really satisfying strategic aspect. But that is 
what probably the minority of Overwatch games, unless you're playing with a regular crew, you are, I think, as you have said, just exposed to the abyss of humanity. The the (laughs) hatred that you develop for your for your fellow uh, human being is is really a (laughs) terrible thing to behold when you play Overwatch. So in deathmatch mode, you only have to worry about yourself and you could take out your anger on everyone else. Exactly. Maybe you, you don't get that feeling of just being part of something that's larger than yourself, but you also don't get the feeling of being dragged down by some terrible person who is I, refusing I, I, to... It's, I mean, it's basically like the, the complaint about Overwatch is that like people will basically be playing deathmatch mode yes, right in right. a team-based mode. So they'll, they've will they been playing deathmatch all along, so now they can just go play deathmatch and, and maybe... I don't know, maybe it would even like funnel some of the people who are more interested in just sure. killing away from from the team-based modes to, to deathmatch. I hope yeah. so. One of the things that they've introduced recently is, you know, they have like a summer games promo where it's like limited game types for, I think, a couple of weeks in August. And one of the things they have is a very Rocket League-esque type of game called Lucio Ball. Right, which is Lucio, Lucio Ball, yeah. And it, that is super fun. So I guess if that's, mm-hmm. if we're talking about, I guess this would be the the, the free-for-all, the deathmatch would be kind of like the philosophical counterbalance to that. Lucio Ball is also, it's just something I hope sticks around. It's funny because one of our guests, Tony Palumbi, who wrote, who wrote uh, Blood Plagues mm-hmm. and Endless Raids, he Twitters about Overwatch a lot, complains about it, and I really... I bond with him, like, you know, from a distance over the internet about his his complaints about Overwatch on on Twitter. Keep doing that, Tony, please. (laughs) All right. I'm ready to to find out why you're looking so good lately and uh, expose the artifice that is happening here. I'll let everyone know. I've seen you in real life. That's right. It's it's just not the same. It's not the same guy. It's It's a cardboard mask. It's It's rotting flesh. Very produced. (laughs) 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 All right. Let's get to our first guest. And now we're talking to Ada Trin, an L.A.-based male groomer and the makeup expert for Talk Thrones, which is how I met her. She also does a lot of work with esports events. She's the founder and CEO of Guys Etiquette. She's worked with Riot Games, Blizzard, League of Legends events. Ada, thank you for letting me convince you to be on our podcast and talk about esports and makeup. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. So how did you get into doing makeup and male grooming for esports events? So it started about, I want to say four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. I was actually the department head for Maker Studios, which now has been bought out by Disney. Yeah, so I was department heading and I was working all of their PAX events. They had a division called Polaris, which is their gaming network. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met PewDiePie. That's how I met Game Grumps, John Tron, uh, Dodger, Jesse Cox, like basically all the YouTube video gamers. Mm-hmm. And I started following them to different PAX events, you know, throughout the country. So I first started at PAX Prime, which is in Seattle. And then we went to San Antonio. And then we went to Boston and, and then Comic-Cons and all that sort too. But yeah, I started there and I started realizing that a lot of these video gamers yeah. were always on either on their computer or playing video games. And funny enough, like <laughs> yeah. a lot of the times they have crazy eye bags. That was my yeah. the biggest that's like me concern with <laughs> yeah. you know video gamers. Right. It's their their eye bags. We and don't also, sleep. Yeah, video that, games are too good. Yeah, yeah it's true. Go to sleep. Yeah. yeah, and another thing is the texture of their skin. Because when you're in front of the computer so much, you know, all of the the radiation from the computer or whatever, (laughs) that really affects their skin, too. Mm. And I'm feeling very (laughs) (laughs) self-conscious. And, you know, with today's technology, like, you know, like selfies and cell phones or HD cameras, all that stuff. It's so important. Not just it's more so when, when I come on board to do male grooming, they're all like, Okay, you're doing makeup for video gamers. Yeah. That makes like no sense. Why do <laughs> right. video gamers make need makeup? <laughs> we we need it more than anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny because people are like, Oh, you're just gonna dust some powder over them, right? And I'm like, No, actually it's a whole process because right. you know, like I was telling you of you know, of being exposed to like the screen and the computer screen and all that stuff. Their skin texture is like a little different and then they get a little 
greasier than normal people because of that. (laughs) So um, it's more about um, color correcting and correcting their skin texture and also getting them not to be so sweaty on camera. That's such a big distraction. (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so, so yeah, so I, and then it kind of caught on and then I started getting calls to work with Riot Games. And then from there, I've been working with Blizzard for the past year and a half. I do makeup for basically all of their videos or their events or any of that sort. Cause I think that they are now starting to catch on being like, oh, I actually don't look so great on camera, you know, looking (laughs) real shiny or, you know, just not looking like looking so super tired, I think is the biggest (laughs) issue. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking only for myself, I don't get a ton of natural light, which I, uh, I think in the long run will protect me. I hope my, my skin is pale. There's a history of dangerous moles in my family. So I'm hoping that in the long run, this will serve me well, but Mm -hmm. on camera, it is not always the greatest look. So I could definitely use you to make it look like I have been outside. Yeah, um, I don't know if you guys know, but recently I just did makeup for Elijah Wood for his new, I guess he has like a VR company that now just partnered up with Ubisoft to do a launch. Yeah, I actually, for that commercial, I did all of their male grooming. Is there, so is there like one of the things that is part of an esports broadcast is like, you know, the player will have a little picture in picture like on the screen. They'll have a little like webcam essentially, but Mm -hmm. it's like obviously better than a webcam on their computer that just right on their face. Yes. So does that change the calculus of like what you need to do and, and how is that different than when you shoot, when you do Jeff Kaplan, when he's doing like a single cam video about like how Arisa sucks or whatever, like how is that different than doing a live event? Obviously there's going to be less sweat and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, what, yeah. what is it, what, what is your, like you arrive at a League of Legends event and what is your, what is your day entail? Yeah, totally. So having cameras and stuff like in front of their face, obviously the distance between the camera, you know what I mean? It's totally different than if you were to be, you know, like on a show or something. Mm -hmm. So it's really close. And I try to put like anti-shine, anti-sweat on it because being that close, you could really see. And it's just so distracting. So I have to really go in and where the T-zone is, I have to like block all that out and mattify everything. Are these esports guys like, are they... (laughs) Are they surprised the first time they're like, wait, I have to get makeup to like do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. They're like, oh, <laughs> this is happening. And then when I think it's like when they see themselves again, they're like, oh, OK, like the right. difference <laughs> with and then without. They're like, oh, yeah. whoa, yeah. OK, totally. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely see a trend now growing right. in, in that field. And and it's funny because people are always like when they see people on the red carpet and they're like, oh, he's like really good looking or whatever. I'm like, you know how much makeup he has on right, right. now? Like, <laughs> he doesn't just wake up like that. Um, and I think that a lot of the gamers now are starting to see, okay, cool, like, I can look a lot better. And and it's more so looking good, but also, like, the distracting portion of it where it's like mm. some of them are so greasy and it's, like, <laughs> sweaty. And I, I can't even explain it. Like, And I see some of them and I'm like, okay, I totally see why you need – or, like, one of the biggest things is chapstick chapstick mm. interesting yeah. yeah a lot of a lot of gamers have really crusty Man. like dry lips i'm feeling so <laughs> terrible about myself now <laughs> Me too. you know you don't have to because you have ada there that's true yeah well i mean this matters because esports athletes are celebrities yeah. now and mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with their performance in the game and their personality but it also has a lot to do with how they look and endorsements are at stake and followers and earnings. So, I mean, this is maybe secondary or, or tertiary and it's not something that you think of when you get into games. But once you're there and you're at this level, it really does make a difference, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and like you said, it's really important for self-confidence as well, too. And also, you know, it helps with like, you know, if there's a sponsor or something like that and they're like, there's a lot of money on the line, they're like, okay, 
why these people look like this? What's going on here? <laughs> like, mm. you know, so yeah, I totally see that now. And game esports is such a big thing now too, where it's like, yeah, appearance do matter, you know, and people always be like, oh, gamers look like a certain way. And I'm like, no, like that image could totally be changed. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I think it's an aspect of esports that people don't really realize. I think people think of traditional ball and bat sports and people sweating and the camera not being an inch from their mm-hmm. face. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So let's like you're at a League of Legends event. It's going on for hours. Do you just hit these guys like one time or do like every time they go out to the stage, you have to do it again? Mostly it's a one time kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I pack it on. <laughs> And I seal it. <laughs> Do you ever have a guy be like, I don't know, I'm not doing it. You, I have a lot of guys that are, yeah. In, in the <laughs> beginning, they're like, you are not coming close to me. Right. You're you know, no. And then they see other team players and they're like, oh, okay. Well, I guess it doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know? So yeah. So now, so now I think, yeah, the first time ever it was really weird, but now they continue to see me and they're like, okay, cool. Like, What was the first like big esports event you actually did? Gosh, I don't, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> Is it really bad that I like work in the industry, but I don't really know much about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess it often looks sort of the same. It's right. a bunch of people sitting at computers on a stage and their lights and noise. And yeah, yeah it, I, it's I'm, probably pretty tough to, to remember I'm the differences. So, I'm actually really bad. The other day I went to, um, and I was telling Jason this, so Kristen Press is a client of mine, and she asked me to go to one of her games. I've never been to a soccer game before. And I, and I like, I'm there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, mm-hmm. And then the commercial plays. I'm like, oh, my God, that's a commercial I worked on. <laughs> like, I, like, never, ever see my work ever. And it was, like, playing on the screen. And I was with my girlfriend, who's a wardrobe stylist on the commercial, and we were both like, oh, my God, that's so cool. We actually see something that we work on because, honestly, like, 98% of the time, I like don't know what I'm working on and I just get a call sheet and I show up. Well, so when you go down to Blizzard and like hang out there for the day, what do they have you do? They have me, yeah, just do makeup for all of their video content. Gosh, I should have done a lot more studying <laughs> before I got here. But there's one guy that I do. Jeff Kaplan. For. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I love him. He's very sweet. And yeah, and I've done his makeup several times. And now he he's so sweet. He just like comes in. He like knows exactly what he needs to do. He just like comes into my chair. He's like, hi, Ada. I'm here again. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. The first time when I did Jeff's makeup, he was like, uh, I don't wear a lot. Um, yeah, I don't like a lot. And I'm like, don't worry. I got you. And I think now, like, as he's seeing like playbacks, it's like, Ada, I'm so happy you're here now. I'm looking great on camera. I don't look tired anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So at these big tournaments, nerves can be an issue because a lot of these guys are playing in solitude or just with their team at the the team training house. And then they suddenly get up on a stage in a big arena and there are thousands of people streaming. And that's a a recipe for anxiety. And so Mm -hmm. I imagine that that leads to sweat. Are there a lot of flop sweating esports players (laughs) that you are? just having to dab constantly throughout games? Oh, yeah. You'd be surprised. Oh, yeah, totally. And I have like this anti-sweat thing that I just put on and it really, really helps with that. Yeah. Mm. I'm not a big sweater. Yeah. Is it only for their faces? Because when Jason and I were at a a tournament at MSG, we were noticing that the teams were holding these like desiccants in their hands that were drying (laughs) out their hands because, of course, they have to use their hands to, you know, do these precise inputs on the mouse and the keyboard. And if they're just sliding all over the place that will impair their performance. Absolutely. Yeah, no, for me, at least in my division, it's only just the face. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that too. But yeah, just for me, it's just like really focusing on face and hair, especially too, like getting that out of their face too. Like that's really important. How do you explain esports to other people when you work an event? Like when you're going to, like, I, it's often interesting to me just like how people try to explain esports to people who aren't like involved in it in any way. So like when you're, you're like, I'm going to this thing, it's people playing video games. Like how do you, how do you explain it to people who don't really get it? Okay, so that's very, very interesting because I didn't even know it was actually like a right. sporting thing. Sure. I recently just found out there. I get a call sheet and they're like, you're doing this thing. And I'm like, great. What is this again? <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people now are very, when I explain it to them, they're like, wait, hold up. So you're telling me that there are people, so it's like a sport now who are just like on their computer or whatever, and they're 
they're battling other people. Like, what's going on? <laughs> and I'm like, and then it's funny because sometimes I'm like, okay, like it reminds me of my like Nintendo days where sure. I'm like sitting in front of my TV being like, yeah, <laughs> trying to compete with other people. But yeah, yeah, it's people are just kind of weird out, but some are like really interested. They're like, okay, like I really need to know what's going on. It's, it's, it's a real thing now. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot more interest now for me when I'm communicating that to people. Cause at first I don't know that it's a thing. <laughs> and what about with YouTubers and streamers? You mentioned mm. some YouTube personalities. Do they have people just on retainer who are helping them with makeup for every video or are they calling people like you in just kind of on an ad hoc basis or? Yeah. Um, so with video gamers, what I find is a lot of brand deals. So if they're doing, mm. if you're, they're only doing like, you know, like a YouTube thing at home, right? not so much, they won't call me for that. But anytime when there's like a big brand deal and they want to, you know, because there's client and all that stuff, they want to make sure that, that I'm there and just taking care of them and making them look good. So most of the time it's, it's bigger brand deals that I get called in for, or actually shows too. I did a show with John Tron for Maker Studios back in 2015. And I was on that show for like three and a half months. It was with John Tron and then also Game Grums. And yeah, so mostly shows and, and brand deals, I would say. So what do I do about the bags? I don't sleep. I'm not getting enough sleep. <laughs> Sleeping like a paltry amount of hours a night. I yeah. just like. Is there, is there something that the rest of us, those of us who are not on live Twitter TV every right. week, not living yeah. that Hollywood life that yeah, Jason is living these days? What can we do without you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, my, my biggest advice would be, and I told Jason this several weeks ago too, is. Because yeah, um, she was horrified by the way I looked. <laughs> green tea bags are actually uh-huh. really, really good. Yeah, for under eye bags. So, you know, if you're drinking Does tea. Does drinking it help? Because I'm drinking it all the time, but I'm not putting it on my face necessarily. You, yeah, you can actually, when you're drinking your tea, you can just, after you seep the uh, tea bags, just take them and, and put them right underneath your eyes. And actually it helps a lot with broken capillaries. It's, you know, when you're staring mm-hmm. at the screen for so long, you know, that ha- it tends to happen. So yeah, it really, it, the caffeine in it really helps regenerate the uh, skin cells. My eyes frequently bleed. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're on Twitter all the time though. Do you break more capillaries looking at Twitter than other forms of, I, I of think computer? I can't tell it's just bleeding all Probably. the time. <laughs> do you ever do the kind of makeup where it's less about making someone look like the best version of themselves, but making them look like a character or the full sort of makeup you see when someone is on Star Trek, for instance, and they're sitting oh. in the chair for 10 hours to get ready. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So prosthetics and, and special yeah. effects makeup. Oh, yeah. absolutely. In fact, I started off doing special effects makeup. I started off as a, a PA on The Wizard of Oz with James Franco many years mm-hmm. ago. And then I started working in the a lab and um, started molding and all that stuff. So yes, I did that for some time. Mm. So I actually get called to work Comic-Con a lot. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. To do like, you know, what is it? Can you name drop some characters or? Um, I Yes. <laughs> it's a night elf. I've done uh, several of those. Uh, what is ooh, that on a game? Okay. Uh, a night went from Skyrim? No, from, gosh, what is that game? Oh, this is embarrassing. Okay, so hold World on. World of Warcraft? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. I, 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 yes, thank you for saving me. Yes, yes, yeah. World of Warcraft. I, I've done many characters off of that. Wow. Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can show cool. you guys some photos next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Last question. It's what I've been wondering. It's what everyone's been wondering. How much work does it take to make Jason look presentable? Because he looks great on Talk oh, to Thrones. Thanks. He's radiant. Yeah. Looks like he's lit by the light of the seven. That's what it so looks like. So what is the strategy when Jason sits down in the chair? How much, how intensive is this process? So much work, Jason. Yeah, Jason needs so much work. No, no, it's uh, Jason doesn't need a lot of work. He's already good looking. Oh my god. Oh, he's already that's a look. So sweet. Yeah. I usually do, I usually do go last because Annie Greenwald requires two and a half hours. <laughs> I love. That's a joke, guys. God. <laughs> no, you guys are actually my favorite. My favorite people to work with, actually. Well, thank you so much yeah. for saying that. You guys, are my favorite. And, 
So we've been talking to Ada Trin. You can find her at Life of Ada at Instagram. She's an LA-based male groomer and a founder and CEO of Guys Etiquette. Works with Riot Games, Blizzard, League of Legends, and also us every Sunday night. Ada, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. That was so much fun. Thank you. All right, let's hit the podcast pause screen. We'll hear from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back with Keith Law. Strategy card games are fun. Online strategy card games are arguably even more fun. Know what isn't fun? A stale online strategy card game where things don't change for months and months, where you lose to the same decks week after week. Why play an online digital card game if it doesn't change? Welcome to the Elder Scrolls Legends Heroes of Skyrim, a different take on the online strategy card game. With unique gameplay mechanics like lanes, runes, and prophecies, frequent balance updates to the metagame, weekly in-game tournaments, and a new card every month, Legends is new, fresh, fair, and interesting. And Legends features something for everyone. For those of you who like to play solo, Story Mode will have you immersed in the world of the Elder Scrolls universe with fully voice-acted cutscenes and beautiful motion graphics. While playing through the campaign, unlock new cards and level your cards to tailor your playstyle and decks. Legends also features a solo arena mode where you draft a deck of cards and play against various AI opponents in different game rules and conditions. Like PvP? Jump online to play a versus arena or battle mode. In arena mode, players construct their own 30-card deck on the spot, which they'll wield in a series of intensely challenging matches that offer the prospect of huge rewards. Battle mode allows players to bring their finely tuned decks against online opponents in ranked matches for a chance to top the leaderboard. And if you're not able to jump in the game, link your Bethesda.net account and your Twitch account for a chance at free in-game loot, like currencies and card packs that you can get randomly, just by watching any Legend stream or by streaming the game yourself. So whether you're a strategy card game fan or a fan of the award-winning Elder Scrolls characters, world, and of course dragons, the Elder Scrolls Legends Heroes of Skyrim is available now for free. Find it today on Google Play, the App Store, and Steam for PC and Mac. Okay, so we are going to do something a little bit different for us in this segment. It's something that we've talked about, talking about, but we haven't actually talked about to this point. But there was a story that we were reading at gamesindustry.biz this week. It's about the decline in the number of projects and the number of funded video games on on Kickstarter. And there has been a somewhat dramatic decrease over a longer period, a, a more gentle decrease over the past few years. But the gaming category on Kickstarter does not show that decrease because tabletop gaming has had a huge increase. And if you just Google golden age of tabletop gaming, you will come up with many results. And so we wanted to get someone on to talk about this and why it has been such a growth period for tabletop gaming, board gaming, and the overlaps and the connections and parallels between video gaming and tabletop gaming. So I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to about this than Keith Law, whom many of you probably know as ESPN's senior baseball writer, the author of the recently released Smart Baseball. But in his second career, or one of his other alternative careers, he reviews board games for Paste and for his own blog at at Meadow Party. So he is a board gaming enthusiast. Hello, Keith. Hello. P.S. I'm I'm holding a a proof of Smart Baseball in my hand right now. Excellent. All right. I'm glad to hear it. Jason's been getting into baseball lately. He's more of a a basketball guy. But I'm trying to connect with Ben, who there you go. Won't invite me to his wedding unless I know five things about baseball. I appreciate the gesture. So, is that characterization of this as the golden age of tabletop gaming? First of all, is there a preferred term? Does tabletop only refer to certain board games? Is it like not all tabletop games are board games? Is there a, is there a better nomenclature here? I think either of those would suffice, tabletop or board games, because anything else you might use to refer to these would start to sound limiting. And there are even people who will quibble. I think it's pure pedantry, but they'll say, mm-hmm. you know, what about card games? Dominion is a very popular mm. board yeah. game. It's a board game. It is a board game. It, you know, for me, if it comes in, it comes in a box, it's a board game. And, if, <laughs> and But it's all cards. The entire game, and it, there's about 8,000 expansions at this point, it's all cards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's still a board game. Tabletop is a great term. Obviously, Will Wheaton's video podcast helped popularize the term. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the one thing these all have in common. You're going to play on some flat surface, I hope. Having tried to play games on... You know, bedspreads in hotel rooms <laughs> while our daughter was asleep in the next, but like it does, just doesn't work. Yeah. You need a flat surface. That's about the only thing all of these games have in common. 
that's one advantage that video games have, I guess, is that is you true. can play them in a prone position. You can play them with the Switch just wherever you are. So there is that. But we'll we'll talk about some of the commonalities and differences. But is that a fair characterization that this is the golden age, that this has been a period of unprecedented growth or popularity? Yes, I think that's all accurate. And it's certainly taken me by surprise. I got into this hobby really a long time ago, probably about 10 years ago, I started getting into it because just because I had liked board games as a kid, but never really played a ton of them. And then started to hear about just a couple of new titles, new to me, that is, including what was at the time called Settlers of Catan. It's still been rebranded as Catan. It's probably the one new board game that everyone listening would know about. Even if you don't know about the hobby at all, you know about that one game. And as that game started It probably took a good 10 to 15 years before its growth really started to accelerate. But as that grew, it kind of dragged the hobby along with it. And we Mm -hmm. got to this point where suddenly other retailers, Barnes & Noble, decided they were going to be a a, the first real mass board game retailer. And that created outlets for additional publishers. Like a, a number of different factors had to happen for this to for us to enter this golden age, because I'm sure that the ideas were always out there. There were probably plenty of people who had what they thought were brilliant ideas for board games and no place to put them, no no mm-hmm. place to publish them. Now we're in this era where you mentioned the Kickstarter phenomenon. Yeah. I, I would argue there might be too many board games. Ooh. That's probably her- heretical, <laughs> but I certainly can't get to them all. Um, if I get to about 50 or 60 new ones in a year, wow! I think most people would say that's a lot of board games. <laughs> that is a lot of board games. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's too much of everything, right? Yes. Like no matter, no matter TV. what, yeah. right? Whatever yeah. it is, there's certainly too much baseball. There's uh, too much board games. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's whatever there is, there's more of that than we have time to do that. So yeah, that makes sense. What are the, what are the dominant trends in, in tabletop gaming today in terms of style of game mechanics. Are there trends currently? And and how do those connect to like, I guess, the thing that people would immediately think of when when talking about a tabletop game is is D&D. And how does how does what's going on now connect to the Dungeons and Dragons explosion of like the 80s and 90s? And I would distinguish, you know, I'm going to Gen Con, which is the biggest board game Mm -hmm. convention uh, in the United States, I'm going next week, and there will be role-playing stuff there. There'll be miniature stuff there. I would say those are separate from board games, ah. and uh, not to say one is better or <laughs> or. But you, there's definitely a distinction, and uh, the mm. one of the biggest distinctions is the amount of time. A board game, most board games. You sit down, you play, and you're done, right? You play for some you – know, you might play right. for 20 minutes. You might play for two and a half hours. But that session is the end. You've got a, a beginning and end. Whereas I've played some role-playing games. Obviously, they, they're long, they have longer arcs, and you might meet weekly, or you're playing over a series of, of several nights or even over months. There's definitely a distinction there. That said, they, they attract a lot of the same people too. So I don't think it's that one is better or worse. It's that if you're talking about RPGs versus board games, there's, there's some split in terms of the mechanics of the games. You asked about trends. One thing I noticed last year going to Gen Con was just that the production value, the artwork, the quality of components has gone up dramatically. Mm-hmm. I think Kickstarter is a huge reason for that. People are putting in money up front. And the more that they get up front, the more that the companies can pay for real art and for better quality components. And also that fans were starting to demand real art. And plus, if you're going to be on the shelves in Barnes & Noble and now Target, Target's a huge board game retailer, you got to have a nice box. Mm. Also, the last couple of years, we've seen more cooperative games. Pandemic was kind of the first big one. By cooperative, I mean as opposed to competitive games where, you know, competitive games, it's, you know, anywhere from two to maybe seven or eight people sitting around a flat surface and competing against each other. Cooperative games, everyone, usually it's two to four people, you're working together towards a common goal. In pandemic, you're trying to save the world from the base game. It's four diseases that are are four epidemics that are spreading across the globe, and you have to work together to cure them before they basically before they kill too many people. They try to avoid the the kill terminology <laughs> there, understandably. But I mean, let's be honest. Like we're you're wiping out humanity here if you don't right. if you don't succeed. So the other thing, and even stepping back a little further than that, the whole golden age. These were originally sort of dubbed German-style games or Euro games. You'll still see that term. I even use it sometimes because I don't know what else to call it. 
what a lot of these games going back to Catan have in common too is that you you rarely see games where players get eliminated mm. and they're typically well balanced so that even if you fall behind early you still have a chance to compete later in the game as opposed to like to me monopoly is just the most dreadful experience because <laughs> if you just don't get the right roles or you play with someone who's just all really cutthroat the game's kind of over after the first couple rounds but you got to play out the string for another hour and a half and it starts to feel like watching a getaway day game on a thursday afternoon and the batters mm-hmm. are all swinging at the first pitch it's like yeah it's i mean it's a baseball game but it's it does that's not really what i paid for mm-hmm. yeah that's true of, I, I have only very basic board game experience really kind of the games that everyone grew up with whether Mm -hmm. it was stratego and monopoly and risk and yeah a lot of those games have that they kind of break down at a certain point and you start even going around the rules and trying to like end them sooner or (laughs) just take matters into your own hands so because who has that kind of time yeah Right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. ultimately the big problem, I think, is that um, – and there are a lot of games – we can talk about this. And I don't want to go on too much of a tangent. But there are a lot of game board games out there now that have playing times that run two to four hours. Ooh. And that's become a separator even within you – know, I, I debate this with some hardcore board gamers who are readers of my stuff who say that you – know, I'll say a game is a certain level of complexity or difficulty – because if you're if you're telling me the games can take two and a half hours to play, you've just knocked out a pretty large chunk of the buying right. audience. They just mm-hmm. don't have time. They have jobs. They have families. We don't really play games like that in my house very often at all because, again, we have a child and other responsibilities. And so mm-hmm. it's, if you do have time for that, that's great. There's nothing wrong with those games. But that's – sort of a growing niche within board gaming that's never going to reach the mass market of the Catans, the Dominions, the Ticket to Rides, games that you can learn in five minutes and you can play a whole game in an hour. Yeah, this is something that we talk about For with sure. video games too. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. a, a two and a half hour video game would be very short, but yes. in video <laughs> games, you know, there are 80 hour games, 100 hour games, and it's just so daunting to think about trying to squeeze that into your schedule. Whereas when you were a kid, maybe you had that time and you didn't have money to afford multiple games. So if a game lasted forever, if you could spend right. a whole summer playing a game, that was a plus, a selling point. And it, it still is for, for many people. But once you are in a certain stage of life, it, it becomes an obstacle, perhaps. So I remember playing a game, Baldur's Gate. Yeah. So that's got to yeah. be almost 20, yeah. probably 20 years ago now. And you, you could find walkthroughs online and people were timing it and saying there were 80 to 100 hours of gameplay. And I'm just thinking that was ridiculous until <laughs> I actually played the whole thing. It was like, oh, yeah, that's about how much of my life I just put into that game and yeah. you know and but we didn't have kids right. at the time and mm-hmm. my job was different you know with life yeah. was different at that point and now if you told me a video game I mean I've played some of these some a couple of modern titles and thought this would be great if I had the time to really devote to it and just lose myself in the world I just yeah I'm 44 with a child and a demanding job I just can't do it like I used to but it doesn't mean I don't love it why do you think that funding on Kickstarter is 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 moving towards tabletop games is it simply that it's a less rigorous development process I mean, you're talking about cutting cardboard and maybe injection molding some plastic and a little bit of wood mm-hmm. uh, rather than having some, you know like coding rigorous coding over months and years is it simply that like it's just easier uh, it's just easier to get into it's a great question that I, I can give you my sort of impressions sure. of why. Absolutely. I, I would not pretend to have any real answers on this, but I do think, you know, you nailed one of it, just that the cost to the cost to develop, to turn it something from an okay idea into a really polished finished product is it requires less of an upfront investment, I think, from fans. I think the fact that a lot of these are um, that hit Kickstarter are solo efforts or very small mm efforts so there's high touch you see, i see kickstarter efforts go by all the time you know i get a lot of press releases for them and often it's just one or two people i was going to say guys cuz it's usually guys but it doesn't have to be but it's pretty male dominated at this point that uh, and they're very they can be extremely responsive even throughout the kickstarter process in terms of answering backer questions or providing info or adding stretch goals. Like they, it's almost like there's a template now for board games on Kickstarter that a lot of people have sort of followed the same formula that's been hit by some of the more successful games. What I also will say is that it's if you're one of those people who likes those niche games, who likes the $100, uh, you know, the Gloomhaven, Scythe, you know, these are $80 to $110 
MSRPs and their two to four hour playing time. But if you like that, of course, you're going to put up the hundred bucks up front right. because this mm-hmm. this is made. I mean, it, not to be flippant, it's made for you. You are the tar- 100% the target audience for that. So you know, I think it really draws people to it to the point where now it's it's just something like I've we met someone who lives in our neighborhood. I did not know she's probably about my age. She's a big board gamer, as it turns out. Just met her a few weeks ago, and she mentioned all the Kickstarters she'd backed. And oh, wow. it, to me, it was just that was incredible. <laughs> not that I just it was. She said it like it was completely expected. Mm. That was the part that really got me. It was and I, I was like. Yeah, of course. I guess it is, right? If you're into the hobby, you've probably backed some Kickstarters. Mm -hmm. So was there a time when you were as into video games as you were into board games? Did those interests or your dedication to them diverge at a certain point? What's your your gaming background, video gaming background? So I'm, like I said, I'm 44. So I had an Atari 2600 and then a Mm -hmm. 5200. I had a Commodore 64 and then a 128. So basically from the early 80s, up till I went to college in 1990, there was always a console of some sort or a mini computer in the house. Um, And I had lots of games and I loved playing games uh, of all sorts, RPGs and, you know, what we would now call 4X games. They were pretty simple at the time, but they were the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Um, (laughs) I often joke that the first semester of my junior year in college, I majored in Sid Meier Civilization, um, (laughs) which would take, I would clock it at about five hours or so for a clip, and I would often not move for five (laughs) hours. I mean, it was just so, that that type of game will suck me in faster than anything else, to the point where I started to drift away from the hobby because I realized, like, I'm not getting anything else done. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I got married at 22, obviously, and my wife is – she loves board games. She does not love video games, so that would be a solitary activity. Uh-huh. Um, so I might play some like when I was traveling a lot for the Blue Jays and was alone in hotel rooms. More often, I would play a little bit, but I just sort of gradually left it behind just because of the time commitment and because I don't trust myself. That's the other thing. I get sucked in very easily. And Baldur's Gate is one that I often – I still refer to in my board game reviews and even in, in reader chats because it was – to me, at the time, it was the best video game I'd ever seen because it combined story and a lot of production elements too that I'd never seen before. I think now it's much more common, but that somebody really wrote that at a level of dialogue that I had never seen in a game before. And it yeah. was sort of, wow, I could spend the rest of my life playing games like this and not really do anything else with my time. Mm-hmm. Is there a part of you that board gaming appeals to that video gaming did not or vice versa do you see the same interest in you being satisfied by one or the other to a greater degree it's for me i'm not a very competitive player obviously Mm -hmm. i like i want to win because (laughs) i'm human but like i'm not cutthroat playing whether i'm playing board games with friends or even playing online like I, i to me it's it's a everything is a puzzle it's always a challenge whether it's a game with no randomness or a game with a fair amount of randomness, most of these Euro games, they sort of limit the luck factor. Um, and it's seen as a positive if a game has very little or no luck. Like Puerto Rico is a very popular game. It's been around for 15 to 20 years that's got almost no randomness in the game whatsoever, which unfortunately also means there's kind of a dominant strategy. But mm-hmm. that, to me, if I lose but I feel like I played well and I sort of solved the puzzle. I'm, you know, air quoting that, but to me, that's good. Like then I, then I enjoy the experience and I like the social, I really love playing with friends because I love the social aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether I'm playing with my daughter, um, which now it's something that we really can do together, or we have friends over or we're invited to friends. We play a board game like that social aspect. I love, I have also played with people who are maybe a little, too serious about it and that's fine <laughs> yeah. but you you know it's kind of not great to be the guy at the table who's like i'm just here for the beer and to play the game as mm-hmm. opposed to sheila put the knife down like it's just <laughs> not that serious <laughs> okay. um, yeah. what so what are the tabletop games that are that you love right now and then what are some of the classic ones that you think are great like if someone was going to get into this hobby what are the ones that they really can't miss so and i do a list every Mm-hmm. year on my site that has now grown to ranking 100 games i've decided to stop like i could keep going uh, but it just gets ridiculous like no one should own as many games 
as I, I own way too many games. I really do. I had to build <laughs> shelves to house all the games. Because the other problem with board games, that vi- the advantage video games absolutely have over board games that I must concede is space. Yes. Uh, yeah, board games are big. Some of them are really huge. I got, I've got i gotten two board games this year to review, The Colonists and now A Feast for Odin, each of which weighs over seven pounds. Um, yeah. And they're big, like yeah. Cones of Dunshire style really, games. I mean, that's, I keep mentioning that in reviews, and I'm like, <laughs> yes. it's almost like I have to stop making the joke because it's not funny anymore. <laughs> right. We're, we've, we're sort of nearing the singularity. Um, <laughs> the games that I recommend to people, there's three that I go to a lot, and they are the top three on my ranking. Carcassonne is a tile-based game that you could find anywhere. It's The base game is inexpensive, very simple to learn, only a couple of ways to score, and plenty of replayability. It's the the great entry-level game for adults or older kids to try to get into the more... You know, the, I, the more serious side of board gaming. If you've got younger kids and want to introduce them, Ticket to Ride is one of the first ones. I mean, the first two board games of these of this group that my daughter ever played were the two I just named. Ticket to Ride is a train game, also. So I always say to parents, like, do your kids like trains? Of course they like trains. They're kids. <laughs> kids always love trains. It's just you're placing trains on a map and you're matching colors. Now there's a little more to it than that, but that's really most of the game. And it's again five minutes to learn plenty of replayability and it's one that i think balances if you you can play that game as an adult without dumbing it down and still give your kids a chance to compete Mm -hmm. and then of games that are really sort of at the higher level of complexity or difficulty seven wonders really only takes about 30 to 40 minutes to play but there's a ton going on in the game it's more of we call it engine building where you're doing things early in the game to add points or money to get to do more things later in the game. That's a very popular mechanic that I think is becoming more popular and the engines are becoming more complicated too, which is not necessarily my cup of tea, but Seven Wonders is great for that. Yeah. I I tried playing that game recently with some friends who were much more experienced in it. And it has that problem where the explaining how you play the game goes on for (laughs) quite a while. And then you don't really understand what's happening until you've been through the game a couple of times. And if you're not someone who's playing it regularly, it's like, well, that's the whole session. It's right. You you just kind of grasp what you're actually doing here. So I guess that's maybe one advantage video games have. I mean, certainly there's a a high barrier to entry with some video games, but at least there's kind of a a tutorial mode and they'll ease you into it and here press A and you jump. And it's a little more intuitive in many cases, as opposed to a game where, okay, here's their different kinds of crafting (laughs) and resources and here's the order and here's the arcane rules. And I find that to be something that I bounce off of when I try to play sometimes. Yeah. A friend of mine, a reader who's become a friend, who will I'm sure will listen to this, uh, named Tim. He, uh, when we lived in Boston, he lives in the Boston area, and we connected through my writing, and he's into all of these games too, and he's probably got a little higher tolerance for uh, game length than I do. And I had gotten Agricola, which is a, one of the highest rated of these kind of engine building games with a million little pieces to it also. And mm-hmm. he said, oh, I'll come over and I'll show you guys how to play. And I said, yeah, great. I'll cook dinner. Da, 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 da. I mean, he cleaned our clocks and he left. And I was like, I think that was fun. I don't really know that I know how to play the game, though. Yeah. Um, and then I found out Tim works in operations research, too. And so playing board games with him is a, is a different experience. Like, I just accept I'm not going to win. Yeah. So he's, you just you're seeing a whole level under the surface that is you know, I, I left that behind in business school and I never looked back. <laughs> and you're playing hundreds of board games, so you must notice like, oh, okay, this is in the vein yes. of this game. And so I have some sense of how this works. There's this yep. framework that kind of transfers from one game to another that if you don't have that board game literacy is probably even harder to pick up. Well, that's I assume this is true in video games, too. But there's yeah. there, look, there's certain mechanics, there's certain oh, frameworks, yeah. there's certain themes, mm-hmm. right? And you can always I think part of the job of the I review the games for paste and then some others on my own site. But one of the jobs too, you know, I want to explain you want to tell them I like it. I don't like it. You want to explain the rules, basically, but also just give them a sense. Have you played? Here are some more common games you've probably played. It's in this vein or it's in that vein. Or here's the thing that separates it from these three other games that you think it's going to be like. 
but hey, there's something better about this. There's something novel, especially when you run into something new in board games. There's so many board games and so many of them. My wife has said, don't bring another game into the house where you have to collect wood <laughs> yeah. because that's like all – it's all of the – it's unbelievable. And then we got one recently where it's like you had to collect emmer. And which is like an ancient type of wheat. And I'm thinking you just didn't want to call it wheat. That's right. what yeah. it was. That's exactly right. what this was. Do, yeah. do you have any uh, feel for what makes a successful Kickstarter tabletop campaign? Uh, what is it that seems to get the most bucks from people who are fans of this genre? I, I do think pr- showing high production value out mm. of the shoot is huge. I see a lot of references to artwork or quality of pieces, even in people who like brag about that. There's a big thing, too, where you go on Board Game Geek, oh, I backed this game. Which, I mean, that's great. If it gets more people into the hobby, that's awesome. I always think it's funny. It's like, hey, I gave these people my money. Like, that's right. okay. Hey, good for you. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the production value is huge. Designers who've got some kind of track record at all, that's also big. People do – there are a lot of smaller cons, gaming cons that go on throughout the year. A lot of these designers will go out and demo games, play test them with people, and that helps build a buzz. And obviously people – people can – even at Gen Con, there's going to be a bunch of games there that will not hit the market until next year, but they'll have demos out. So people can actually touch and feel the components and get a look at it, maybe even talk to a designer. It's, all right, I'm, I'm buying – because you're buying into someone's vision too. So to get that up front is huge. And I would imagine that's probably a challenge in video gaming where – even producing a trailer is probably requires a fair amount of resources and time to make mm-hmm. something that's going to look right. Hey, the game is going to look like this. Here's a five minute sample that, yeah. that gives you all of everything that we're trying to do. Like that's not a small undertaking. It would be easier to do that in board gaming. Cause you don't, they don't, Look, you can here's this little brown cube. It's a cow. Okay. It's going to be a cow and it'll look like <laughs> a cow after the Kickstarter, but for now it's just a brown cube. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because that's another thing that sometimes makes it hard for me to get into it is that I almost feel as if my imagination has atrophied because (laughs) video games have just supplied (laughs) the world for me. Right. Like uh, maybe this is more of an issue with role playing board games and tabletop games, but it's a little harder to have to conjure those images and characters, which is not to say that you don't think and and that video games don't improve your you know analytical skills and spatial reasoning and all of that, but everything is there for you. You are in the world. You don't have to imagine the world. And so it's right. almost a little more work to have to build that as you go, you know, that mental image mm-hmm. as opposed to just, oh, look at the, the pretty graphics. I'm, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. So you mentioned the the social aspect, and this is something in one of the many articles about how this is the golden age of video games. I think this was in The Guardian. There is this Will Wheaton quote, and he says that multiplayer video gaming was fun, and then dickheads ruined it. It became this (laughs) cesspool of toxic aggression and unpleasant behavior. So the hypothesis is that, and it's not as if every game that tabletop games make has to come at the expense of video games. It's not like it's a zero-sum game necessarily, but the idea is that video gaming used to be this very social, rewarding activity. You would go to the arcade, you would play local multiplayer, just crowded around the TV at home with your friends, and now you are playing online, and as we know, when people are online and anonymous, there's all kinds of toxic behavior and language that you wouldn't actually get in person. So I assume that with board games, you're not getting people cursing and rage quitting and screaming at each other and throwing the board on the floor and wiping all the pieces away so much as you are, you know, when people will just quit in the middle of an online multiplayer match and someone is screening, screaming epithets and and it's just a a very depressing atmosphere at times. The, I know from the cons that I've been to and from speaking to Kyle Decker, who runs the Fantasy Flight Games in Asmodee in St. Paul, Minnesota, they're one of the most important publishers in the space. They also run a board game cafe that is an inc- incredibly impressive, and they get very busy, especially in Minnesota in the winter. What are you going to do? You can't right. be outside, so let's go play board games. And I've talked to him and folks who've run some of these cons too about how they've worked to really to stop that kind of before it starts, 
to make sure that because of course you're you're still going to get those people you're going to get those people no matter what the hobby no matter where it's set mm-hmm. there will always be the element that kind of tries to ruin it for everybody and i have not personally witnessed any of that kind of behavior i've heard second and third hand stories of people sort of acting inappropriately at these things but i mean the list of the sort of guidelines this is the behavior that's expected of you if you're going to gen con if you're going to this other con it's actually kind of impressive like they're trying to you know i feel like the the you know twitter faces obviously a ton of criticism for how they handle trolls and the you know sort of neo-nazi problem they're having you know they mm-hmm. could look at some of these entities and and how they're they're setting expectations up front that i think makes it a better environment i mean i would be perfectly fine if my daughter were interested, I'd be fine taking her to Gen Con. I think it would be – it's a good enough environment, certainly, mm-hmm. a good enough environment for an 11-year-old to be in. Whereas, you know, would I let her play video games online? Like, I don't even want to <laughs> play video games I, online. I'll tell you no. <laughs> I, I don't want to like, give you any advice on parenting. It's like, but don't. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I never played – I will say this. Like I'd play games with friends, but I would ne- – video games. But I never really played online. I'm probably a little too old for it. Like it just – it got much more popular as I was phasing out of the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, it, maybe if I were 10 years younger, I would have done it a lot more because obviously playing a lot of those games, especially RPGs, are just better in a group. Mm-hmm. So you have played and reviewed some video game adaptations or, or mm-hmm. board games that are adaptations of video games such as Doom and XCOM. How do board game makers yeah. transfer a video game Very property to, to a yeah. board game, particularly something like Doom, which does not <laughs> <laughs> suggest like, yeah. to me that it's something that would no. make a great board game? But how does how did it work? It, and I will say to re- remind me if I don't throw this in, I saw one of the funniest it's not out yet, but I'm going to see it at Gen Con, one of the funniest adaptations possible mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, I can't believe they're turning that into a board game. But I'll hold that for a second. <laughs> okay. um, Doom was good. I was surprised. It's long. It's a campaign-based board game. You do see more of these now where one night is a session. You're playing one campaign sort of start to finish, right. but you're probably going to be sitting there for a while. And then the next time you play, it's going to be something different. The board changes. The monsters you're fighting change. And the way they set it up to essentially some of the ground rules would even change from time to time. There was a somebody did a Temple of Elemental Evil board game two uh, maybe two years ago. Same idea, wasn't executed quite as well, but it was the same thing. Each there's a different dungeon crawl each time. The monsters spawn in different places. There's different objects. There's different rules in Doom. There's different weapons each time. It was a lot to keep track of, and I think that would probably deter some newbies from it. But once we got rolling, there was definitely a rhythm to it, and everything was moving better, and it was one against the rest. I played the monsters, (laughs) and three other guys were after me. And obviously, it's tilted so that I get to do – on my turn, I get to do a lot more than each of them gets to do individually. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was clever. I thought it was maybe not quite my – something I was going to play regularly, but I think if you're – if you've got the group that's going to sit down for three hours and maybe pound a couple of beers while you're going like that, I could absolutely see getting very engaged in that. Also, I thought it was one of those that would reward repeat play because you start to – the mechanics become much more familiar. Mm. Uh, they had just – there was so much setup. And a lot of those games too, the big thing is now that the length of the rule book. Some people are going to pick up a 20-page rule book and say, this is work. You know, I, I get to say it is work, but I get paid to review games, so that's mm-hmm. okay. Um <laughs> The other one, XCOM was different. XCOM, this is, I wouldn't say it's a trend yet, but I bet we're going to see a lot more of it. XCOM has an app that goes with it that mm. put, it handles a lot of the administrative work for you. So you just tell it what you've done in certain cases or just say, okay, we finished our turn, click, and then the next thing happens. And it handles a lot of the, you know, random card draws or telling you what to do next so that you're not doing all the cleanup. Otherwise, it would be a very difficult and very long experience. And now I've run into a couple of other games like Unlock, which is an escape room type of game that you have to play with the app. The app actually walks you through certain things and you enter, you solve something, you enter a code and it gives you the next clue. Like these board games with an app, with an electronic component, I could see that becoming bigger because it takes some of the work out of it. Mm. So you concentrate just on playing because XCOM, I've never played the video. I remember asking our 
friend Kevin Goldstein about that. He mm-hmm. loved the video game. I said, yeah. yeah, they made a board game out of it. I guess <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it was long. And I was thinking, I remember playing, if you didn't have the app for this, if you were just expected to do this, it would be like having a DM in a Dungeons and Dragons thing where somebody is just in charge of all the work, all of the administrative details that I thought would have made it probably unplayable at that point. So they were taking advantage of the technology to convert it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of interesting, like board games as apps now is becoming yeah. a bigger thing. And even they're showing up on Steam, which I always thought of as a video game platform. Yeah. But obviously, in fact, the only way I've ever played the game Twilight Struggle, which takes forever and costs $100, is on Steam, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Like anything that opens the door for more people to try these things, I'm sure mm-hmm. you guys feel the same way about video games. You're evangelists. Yeah. If yeah. I can get more of you to try it, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how. Yeah, and Steam. I basically got Steam just to try a few of these things, and then ended up getting Fallout. Uh-huh. I was like, Oh, oh. God, <laughs> I could, this is another one. I could be gone a very, very long time. It looks so good. I played for a few hours. It's like yeah. this is pretty awesome, isn't it? And then, yeah. of course, then finally I looked. I'm like, Oh, that's the game that you. That's what that cartoon guy is from. That's what this all is. Like I just yeah. missed Fallout, and now yeah. I now at least I get it. I don't feel so behind. But it was, uh, yeah, that was all because I downloaded Steam to play Twilight Struggle like two years ago. <laughs> oh, and I promised, by the way, yes. I, I, I don't know if, I don't know exactly how old you guys are, but do you remember Centipede? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're turning, there's going to be a Centipede board game within the next 12 months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm dying to see, absolutely dying to see this. And if this works, it's like, all right, uh, Space Invaders? <laughs> right. Like Missile Command? Like I'm all in. Frogger? Yeah. What, what else? Like, just bring my whole childhood back. Yes. Well, they've made movies out of things <laughs> yes. that you would not have ever imagined <laughs> could be movies. Yeah. And uh, 80s nostalgia is strong right Very now. Very strong. So, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do you draw any uh, any similarities between your affinity for for tabletop games and your affinity for baseball? Is there anything there that's just hits you in the same way? I'll give you a for instance. Okay. Like for me, video games are just like the thing I really like about them is the same thing I like about basketball is there's a constant motion to it, and it's kind of like a self medication thing. Like it just keeps it's constantly moving. Problem solving is kind of rolling. Whereas like when I think about tabletop games. There's an ability to stop in the middle without any undue effect on the gameplay. You can kind of chat through it, and it seems much, much more pastoral, communal thing, similar to baseball. I, am I just like overthinking this, or is that a thing? Actually, I had never thought of it that way, but it's, it sounds appealing. Um, <laughs> to me, I never made the connection because they both were so rooted in childhood. Yeah. Um, for me, my, my parents are both baseball fans, my mom in particular, and her whole side of the family. Her mom, her grandfather, the story I was always told he was on his deathbed in the 50s or 60s, and he wanted the Yankees score. And so she swears I watched the 77 and 78 World Series with her. I don't remember them, but I believe her. There was just always baseball on. It's always been something for me. It's always been a thing for in my life. And board games, we didn't play a ton of them, but we had, like, I still remember where they were. They were in the top of the coat closet, the front of the house that my parents don't even own anymore, but I can still picture. There was Scrabble there, and there was Monopoly there. There was Sorry there. I never liked Sorry even as a kid. Now it's even <laughs> worse. Um, I know there was Candyland in the house, which might be the worst board game ever. Wow. <laughs> I, always, I, I tell Hot people, if you, want to teach, if you want to teach your kids that life is pointless and random, play Candyland with them. Um, <laughs> it's not a bad lesson to, yeah, to learn. Really you know, some, some people might argue that, yes, that's Tear exactly the, the lesson away from to their teach eyes your, now. <laughs> yeah. If you, anyone who's played Candyland with their kids knows what you have to do, right? right? You have to be like, hey, what's that over there? Flip through, what's the card? Okay, there you go. Oh, you got the card you needed you win good job good job but but we would play we didn't play a ton of board games when we did i always enjoyed i just enjoyed the challenge i enjoyed the sitting around playing the game trying to figure stuff out the excitement of you know there's a little bit of randomness in all those games that never went away like i still love i still love cracking open a new board game box now punching out the cardboard components there's definitely something primal that that satisfies as well and just you know, cracking open the rules and you know what, maybe the game's terrible, but it might be really great. We run into a couple of year that we just love as a family and that we keep going back to. We just, we were on vacation last week. We had six board games with us packed into our various bags, usually out of the box for 
transport purposes. But like when you find one you love, you just we just keep going back to it again and again. Mm-hmm. So lastly, you've mentioned mm-hmm. some of the, the classics that people should check out. We've mentioned Doom and XCOM. Is there anything else that you think might appeal to a video gamer in particular? And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between these two audiences and probably plenty of people listening are, are already hardcore into board games and tabletop games. But I don't know anything just based on the premise or the mechanics that to you seems more video gamey than the typical board game? Yeah, well, I mentioned Pandemic, and mm-hmm. I mean, it's a whole family of these cooperative games, and the designer of Pandemic has made a bunch of other co-op games from all the way down to one that's aimed at kids called Mole Rats in Space, which is actually pretty fun and kind of cute. It's like, it's really Pandemic for little kids because the rules are just simplified. But that has that experience of you're working together towards a common goal, but you also have to make independent decisions. Mm. You're just you're probably coordinating with other players. There's probably always going to be the one person who wants to tell everyone else what to do. That's usually me. Sorry, <laughs> um, but like that game to me is has that kind of RPG ish feel. Video game, I should say, video game. Saying RPG, it's not right. Um, has that feel to it where. Yeah, you're working together, but you've also got individual challenges in front of you. And yet what everyone else does is really affecting what you're going to be able to do the next time around. And like I said, I think that that, the success of that game and now the Pandemic Legacy games, which is a game that actually you change the board as you go, it'll give you instructions. Oh, put this sticker there or tear this card up. So every time you play, it's a little bit different as well. Also gives it more of that longer arc, that narrative arc feel that you would have with a video game that you might play over 30 or 40 hours over multiple sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that – and. There, Legacy games I thought was going to be the next big trend. It's kind of stalled for the moment because we haven't seen the next big legacy hit. I'm kind of waiting for the next one. It's got to have a great story. And I think that's where we've struggled. There will Eventually, there will be one. But that's, the, uh, that's an idea that I think is really going to bridge. It's going to grab people on both sides. It's going to grab those of us who live on cardboard, but it's going to grab a lot of folks like you guys who love video games and like the longer story and like the greater complexity that mm-hmm. video games can offer. Cool. Well, I'm glad that we bridged that gap on this podcast. (laughs) And you can find Keith on ESPN, ESPN ESPN.com. You can find him on Twitter at KeithLaw. MeadowParty.com is where he writes about board games and books and all the other things that people who tell him to stick to sports (laughs) are not interested in. And his book is called Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. So thank you very much. Keith, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. That was fun. Okay, so that will do it for today. What is your board gaming, tabletop oh gaming history? Gosh. You were going through a, like a D&D phase earlier this year, right? I did go through year, a right? D&D phase. The thing is, that's just, it's so time intensive. It was really, really fun. I played a yeah. couple games. Incredibly time intensive. And also there's like a textbook that you have to read in order to like build your character. Yeah. Come on. Uh, yeah, yeah I've played a lot of Monopoly in my life. A lot of Monopoly. Yes. A ton of Monopoly. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, there's almost like a, a snobbery, I guess, that you can fall into right. when you talk about like Monopoly or Candyland and they're terribly designed games. But at the same time, like we, we got something out of them at the time. And I guess they're a gateway to other yes. board games for many people. So there's something to be said for them. They, they have retained their appeal over a really yes, long period. So they must be doing something right. So, all right. Well, I'm glad that we could be introduced to that world a little bit. I really have only dipped my toe into it, but I'm sure a lot of listeners are much more into it than we are. So hopefully they enjoyed this. I enjoyed it, too. We will be back next week. You have been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Reintroducing The Elder Scrolls Legends Heroes of Skyrim, the latest game from Bethesda. The Elder Scrolls Legends is a new mobile strategy card game that immerses gamers in the dragons, the world, and the lore of the award-winning Elder Scrolls universe. From building your decks to taking on foes in one of the game's three exciting modes, every decision you make will require strategy and careful planning. The Elder Scrolls Legends is available for download globally on both Android and iOS devices today. Welcome, travelers, to the throat of the world.